Hey, are you here, baby? <laughs> well, if you are, it's time to buckle up, stand up, brace yourself. It is the Paul Leslie Hour, baby. In this introduction, we'll be using that word, baby, for emphasis, baby. We got a historic interview for you. You'll like it whether you want to or not. So here's what went down, baby. Rock and roll singer David Lee Roth invited your host Paul Edward Leslie over to his house in Pasadena, California. Paul and his pal from Indiana taped this intelligent, insightful, and at times hilarious <laughs> interview. Best known as the lead vocalist for the band Van Halen, David Lee Roth is a songwriter, an actor, author, and former radio personality. You'll also find him on YouTube. You'll find us on YouTube too, baby. Look up Paul Leslie's YouTube channel and hit subscribe. Ring that bell, baby, because you don't want to miss nothing. It's time to get the show started, baby. Thank you, Diamond Dave, for the stories and the laughter. We love you, baby. It's time. It's time. What time? Time for the interview, baby. The dog is in the Van Halen videos. The dog goes with me on the road. Russ and I did 50 cities together in the United States on the bus. It's good to see you. Welcome to the West Coast. Thank you for having me. Well, you know, this is uh this is a part of the country like Woody Allen says the greatest cultural asset is that you can turn right on a red light. Can you do that where you come from? We can. <laughs> <laughs> so, we're even Stephen. I started off saying it if the table is flat then it's like a poker game, but this is more like I'm going to my probation officer. <laughs> And you, and you don't look up. You just look at the cards and go, so how's it going, Mr. Long? <laughs> <laughs> like you already know, and you're waiting to see if I fess up. You know, kind of a thing. So, Well, on that note, how are you doing? We're doing wonderful. I was at uh, rehearsal late last night with the Van Halen gang, and we're getting ready to go to Australia. We have a one-off, and uh, we're revising some of our approach. For 19 different reasons, usually you revise around your injuries in uh, this little niche of the musical jungle. But um, we've always been resistant to doing one show. It's the equivalent of if you want one triple backflip, it's the same as nine triple backflips. The warm-up is the same. The preparation for it is the same. Yes, in so many senses of the word, I can do a triple backflip for you. I can't say it, but <laughs> a, tri a triple backflip. Um, but the warm-up for that is six weeks long. And then before we're actually going to film the flip, it's about an hour and a half so worth of warm-up. Do you follow the read? So when the whole band convenes, um, we're very much a product. It's a hell of a farmer who blames the plow. But anybody who plays golf professional will tell you a better club, 
better maintained will give you a better shot down the green or however you might characterize it. One little change in an engine and boom, your quarter mile time in a drag racer has improved immensely. Anybody who's doing goofing around with protein shakes in the Olympics will tell you it's just one-tenth of a second is the difference between victory and millions of dollars worth of endorsement deals, etc. So the band has to have its equipment, you know, it's right down to what string goes on which guitar for which tuning that's road crew and it's like an aircraft carrier turning an aircraft carrier around take you hours you don't just go <laughs> do you follow even though we are a small unit you know lead bass drums singing it's uh, the smallest of pretty much what you could do next stop is two acoustic guitars and a hat you know on the sidewalk but um uh, that being said, just rehearsal. A place has to be rented. PA system has to be brought in and the monitors and who's going to run the monitors. The gear is only as good as the fellas who, you know, actually operate this stuff. And they come from all kinds of different uh, bands, you know, and fellows who work with everything from Metallica to Springsteen and their schedules and their families and their secondary families and their mistresses have to be mm -hmm. <laughs> accounted for. And, uh, you know, they, it's not a brand new team you follow. So there's a lot more planning goes into it logistically moving the people around i think the smallest team we have is probably 40 people all together who are going to uh australia mm. all right and uh putting that together has been a tribulation that uh we've uh shied away from that much effort that much to just to get to one rehearsal you should do the whole tour you should, you know, make it into a, a whole package. However, uh, tremulous times call for innovative thinking. It's a product of the wristwatch and the pocketbook. Uh, the economy is eating itself from the inside out like a science fiction monitor. And uh, the clock is ticking. We're different people. Mm -hmm. We're a little more flexible now. Age, I think, has given us um, a little more confidence to laugh at some of the edges. You know, when you do a one-off, uh, and I'm certain that the promotion and the, you know the event and everything in Australia is going to be pretty straight up. It's going to be pretty straightforward, forthright. They say in court of law. Um, nevertheless, you must be prepared flexibly in your mind and spirit. For think of it like a silent movie, and the black screen comes up, and the caption is, "But this is the stage." <laughs> Comedy routine skits, kind of driven like Saturday Night Live, like a lot of my career. <laughs> then the next minute, when that one's over, the black comes up, and it says, uh, "But this is the buffet." <laughs> And the skit starts <laughs> <laughs> slow sweep across the table. You can write this, <laughs> but this is for this is first class. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to be 
you know, you gotta be able to bend and and move. You know, there's an ancient Buddhist poem uh, for Bikyu eleven hundred, and uh, it's, it goes. Uh, I'm gonna have to paraphrase it, but the, that stiff stone statue of the Buddha in my driveway is where all the birds sit, and he deserves it. <laughs> It means you gotta kind of move and absorb, and you can't just confront. And it was, it is that when you set up a city, when you're performing on the road, you're you are basically constructing an entire city, right down to a washer and a dryer. We carry those. There's hundred people on the road. You have transportation. You have medical. You have police, you have, uh, uh, you know, all of the structure that goes into, well, it's more like a, uh, a refugee camp. <laughs> but with a really good bar. Oh, yeah? Good company in the bar. <laughs> Great jukebox. Refugee jukebox. Refugee music Cut Patty. <laughs> Slave deliver. Please. Have you ever had to explain all that when someone complains about ticket prices of music acts today? Oh, well, that's interesting, Dovetail. That's that's a very clever thinking. Is um yeah, and I think it's accurate. Um Van Halen is art centric. We really do generate everything, most of it in this this little office room here. Stage design. We don't just have somebody show us five designs and we go, no, no, yes. Alex and I do it on the computer ourselves. We put it up on the screen and we bring somebody in to nail it together. Um, merchandise. All of the ideas are generated here in the room. And we do it from a different perspective than most people do. Most folks will walk in, they'll find, what is your logo? Oh, I'm from wrestling. Great. The W <laughs> from WWE, we're just going to put the W on a shirt. How about a blue shirt? How about a black W on a white shirt? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Are you taping this? Uh, how about for the girls, pink shirt, white W. Oh, nice, nice. <laughs> And you go around the table. We approach it from Van Halen as a recipe of different neighborhoods. We learned to play music in the different neighborhoods that Southern California alone supplies. It's not like New York City, where Mr. Rodriguez literally lives in the same building as Mr. Katzenberg, who lives in the same building as Mr. Yamazaki. I could do this all night. <laughs> and everybody is kind of in the same elevator more often than not. This is separate neighborhoods. You can afford, even on welfare and food stamps, you a tiny little house, a little stucco plaster house with a little tiny backyard big enough for a pit bull, you know, tie it to a cub cap and get yourself a couple of, you know, thermoplastic, one piece thermoplastic, uh, country molded chairs, put them on a thing and, and you've got it. We, we even invented here the term crack house. We don't say crack apartment. Even crackheads working off of food stamps, welfare, and stolen hubcaps 
can afford a tiny little housing. And what that leads to is neighborhoods. You have the biker neighborhoods out in San Bernardino. It's Hells Angels, Vagos, Mongols, etc. Very different than the Venice Beach surf communities. You know the surf communities. It engendered the surf magazines. You know the names of the fellas, you know, the, the Slaters and the, the, who live out there and do that. Don't confuse it with the skateboard crew who work out of the valley. Don't confuse that with the lowrider Spanish-speaking community, which is not Compton. It's halfway to Compton and it's south of the Harbor Freeway. South of the Harbor Freeway, go far enough, that's content. And that's a neighborhood in and of itself. Bring your 40. <laughs> <laughs> Do you read the Tejano neighborhood, which is Spanish speaking, but those are the gentlemen who wear uh, brand new straw cowboy hats and shiny new point, pointy cowboy boots to Friday and Saturday night. Equally venerable, equally well-known, tens of thousands of these folks, etc. But it's different than lowrider local. It's very, you know, it's not, it's not even generational. It's two separate neighborhoods. Country western, you bet. About 40 minutes north of here is all horse and dog country. You may have seen on the internet, you know, me playing with some of my dogs, you know, corralling sheep and, you know, playing around with the horses and whatnot. It's as country as Kenny Chesney. It is as, you know, really, it's, uh, well, maybe that's not totally country, right. but maybe that is modern country, modern, some country modern. Um, that being said, though, it starts about 40 minutes north of here in the car, you dig? And these are really clearly segmented. Chinatown is this way, but don't mix that with Monterey Park Alhambra Chinese because that's really modern. That's skinny and dangerous. And, uh, and when we were playing in Van Halen, we played the these individual neighborhoods, and it required different kinds of music. You can play Born to be Wild seven times a night out in San Bernardino for the bikers, do you follow? But you didn't want to, in the late 70s or mid-70s, play Aerosmith to them. That was a little shishi. Hmm. Born to be Wild out at Venice, that was a little old school. Aerosmith was modern. You know, it was back in the saddle or walking this way. It was a little more danceable. And the lowriders didn't want to hear either one. Hmm. They wanted Santana local. <laughs> really? And they wanted, you know, Oye Komoa and uh, Evil Woman and uh, Black Magic Woman and Change Your Evil Ways, you know, and so forth. So we learned to, you know, play and cook up a different menu for each neighborhood. When it's time to do your t shirts, it's an oblique way of thinking of it, but what neighborhood is each shirt for? If it's going to be country, if it's going to be Western, if it's going to be whatever, great. Go get a Willie Nelson t-shirt. Start there. Go get a, uh, a Jimmy Buffett uh, catalog. Go get a uh, Kenny Chesney program. Take a look. It'll, it'll shake you loose. You know, it'll get you started. Oh, I know. Okay, I get it. That area. You know, I'm going to start off with the things. <laughs> <laughs> 
you know, engraved uh, leather something, right? Well, you know, hey, put a cactus. Cactus is good, right? <laughs> and you put a cactus, you know, but you're modern, so your cactus is pink, you know, or orange or something, you know, and marvelous. What about downtown? We have a tremendous uh, Spanish-speaking audience. It's not just Mexican, Cuban, Puerto Rican. You know, it's all over the world you follow. So what are you going to do for, you know, south of the border? Well, everybody likes, you know, the graffiti writing and the kind of stuff you drove past on the freeway to get here. Let's actually find some of those fellas, you know, and uh, we can have them do some shirts on the skulls, you know, with the painting on the skulls, you know, uh, la dia, dia de muerte, you know, the day of the dead that they sell them, folks celebrate. It's like, great. Let's find an artist who speaks Spanish, though, who actually does that, you know, and start to bring that neighborhood into focus. You like NASCAR Nation? Great, big, important part of the Van Halen crew. Well, that's easy. That's a Coors Light beer can. You better get a case of them. I'm going to do research. <laughs> and the backgrounds now are all silver. Everything is now angled like it's like... <laughs> Take the ladder ring and like make it go... <laughs> You know, like uh, like the door on a uh, a stock car racing. Uh, I won't get a lot of you know. And uh, you, so, but all of that is done here, and it means uh, ten thousand more phone calls. It yeah. means uh, a thousand more hours. Literally, it means a lot of uh, on site, and uh, it's the behind the scenes that accounts for you know what you see on stage and perhaps even more so than anything else it's why we keep coming back to the stage why is our vigor for this renewed you know a lot of our colleagues kind of finished their long journey to the middle at this point they're not intrigued they're not excited um we're more flexible so let's uh start to uh try some of these one-off shows you know maybe we can compress some of the preparation uh the band now after x amount of years together requires less practice mm -hmm. you follow we do see and speak with each other more often than uh frequently and uh the band is routinely playing it's a year-round endeavor that right there is significant most bands ensemble do not practice year-round orchestras do but uh a rock band usually doesn't get together till about six weeks before go and you know you rent a couple of places a studio a uh you know a, a spacious place to put up your, your lights and sound and whatever you go but in about six weeks and uh, Ed has a studio, and he's routinely up there with the band playing all the time, year-round. It's not a seasonal issue. Um, uh, the only thing seasonal about Van Halen for a long time, uh, for all of us in the band, was getting loaded. That was not episodic. That was more seasonal. <laughs> what are you doing this summer? I'm going to get loaded. <laughs> what are you guys doing? <laughs> <laughs> this land that we're in, California. Is there yeah, this land is, is my land, but this land is also your land. Too. 
was made for you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Good. No, no. It, I could have resisted, but I, I didn't. <laughs> Why <is that>? Please. <laughs> <laughs> is there a magic to south california oh yeah the magic to southern california is in the weather more than anything else it'll slow you down it is uh i made a I made a terrible joke once and it was on uh, it was on foreign radio it wasn't japanese I think it was Italian or something like this. And I told the girl that I was very unhappy. She said, David, you seem unhappy today. I said, yeah, I got bad news from the veterinarian. She says, why? I says, well, he says my goldfish, my prize goldfish, I only have one. He's, uh, he's out of shape. He needs exercise. The battery's going to pass away early. She said, really? I've never heard of such a thing. I said, neither had I. But uh, he gave me a prescription. And... Uh, in my backpack over there, I have a, a special kind of gelatin, and I put it in the aquarium. And then I'm supposed to place the aquarium. I mix it together like jello uh, with the fishing. And then I place the aquarium next to the air conditioner and put it on full for an hour and a half. Firm that jello up. And then I hold the food at one end of the aquarium and sort of tap the glass and go, come here, boy, come here. And he fights his way through the gelatin. And this will strengthen his little fins <laughs> and his fighting spirit. And when he gets to one end of the thing, I jump around to the other side. It seems callous, but it's necessary. And I go, come on, boy. Come on, boy. Like this. Come on, boy. And he fights his way through the gelatin like this to the other side of the aquarium. I, I think it's going to have a positive effect. The weather in Southern California has the identical same impact <laughs> upon humans. Uh, <laughs> you will feel it was beautiful. <laughs> just the space from the top of your mattress to the floor of perhaps for yourself, the hotel room for myself, domicile, that space will be like jumping out of a helicopter into the fucking Grand Canyon. <laughs> You'll wake up in the morning going, no, I can't do it. <laughs> You'll look over the edge of your mattress as far as the floor and go, whoa, I feel queasy. <laughs> I'm having vertigo. <laughs> and, and you'll develop what's, call, what's called high colonic ocular rectilitis. And what happens is this kind of weather will cause your colon to intersect between your rectal nerve and your ocular nerve, and you just won't be able to see your ass going to work ever again. <laughs> this is so common. Oh, All too boy. common. And then, <laughs> it's almost irreversible. <laughs> <laughs> because it is delicious. The weather here is like candy. Even at the worst times of year, it's temperate. 
it's not like Florida where, you know, it, it sneaks up on you and then suddenly it's Cuba, you know, suddenly it's jungleness. It's uh, here is more comfortable than not, particularly like around New Year's Day. It's 80 degrees. People are in uh, T-shirts, etc. Um, and that weather uh, on the positive side is is revitalizing particularly to folks like perhaps ourselves who make our livings like submariners. It's an exchange of interiors. It's the interior of a plane for the interior of a studio, for the interior of the editing, for the interior of the meeting office. And, you know, for me, throw in a dressing room and a rehearsal space. It's a, it's a little bit like walking around in the enterprise, you know, uh, starship wise. The Buddhists say, hey, there's those Buddhists again, uh, and the two opposites become the same thing. Uh, walking around like the captain of the enterprise from one interior to the other, certainly it's also like being transported around like a federal witness. <laughs> you just sit in your hotel room with two big guys outside the door, and you're ushered down the hallway into a car which sneaks out the back way, Elvis style, driven under a building into a cement space where you will wait in a room to go in front of your peers where you will be judged harshly. <laughs> it's, I know it's an interesting way to think about it. <laughs> when you're traveling the world, whether you're alone or you're with a band, do you ever try to collect or bring back any of the indigenous music? Well, Shopping used to be a major component of travel in that you just couldn't get certain items. And it wasn't just music. You couldn't get certain kinds of sunglasses unless you were in New York. You couldn't get a certain kind of blue jeans unless you were in San Francisco, coming right out of the Levi factory. You couldn't get a good pair of vintage blue jeans unless you were in L.A. or Dallas. No, even Dallas was a little rough for some time. We'll say Austin. You had to wait. And uh, going as far back as carrying two stereos with cassette ports so that you could put 120-minute cassettes into them and tape record the local radio station. Because in Florida, the Spanish-speaking stations had really red-hot, sexy Cuban mambo stuff going on. It's very different than the mariachi kind of restaurant approach that the 60s had for Spanish-speaking here in L.A. So you had to wait until you got to Florida and you knew about it in advance. All it takes is one trip. And you know, we toured for a year and a half first time. You know, take mental notes. You learn very quickly. Same thing for food. Today, of course, with FedEx, cell phones, internet, it's not as imperative that you geographically wind up somewhere to have sushi. You can get damn good sushi in Dayton, Ohio, whereas before, nobody knew what it was, relatively recently before. Um, my one regret in terms of showbiz music is that I didn't have YouTube growing up. I didn't have the internet. I didn't have 
the Google web, <laughs> the Google net, <laughs> uh, because you had to wait until you geographically arrived somewhere before you could in, improve the game. You wanted shaggy music, you see the movie Dirty Dancing, you go, well, I like that kind of white boy soul, that funky beach soul. It's called shaggy. Well, you got to wait until you go to the Carolinas. And then you would find deck after deck after deck of hundreds of records in the record store. And I would shop by forearm, just simply pile all of the uh, uh, cassettes or records onto the table and then with my forearm scoop them into a big garbage bag and have a security guy take it up to the register and ring it all up. And for years, I carried duffel bags full of cassette tapes. Well, I had to stop carrying records. They all got destroyed on the road. But probably a good 80 pounds of cassettes hmm. um, that were collected from all over the world of all types. Because you don't know what's going what's to uh, rub up onto you permanently. So you can't just define, yes, you will define what you like the best and you'll keep referring back to that, but uh, you got to know everything. You have to be familiar with uh, all the colors in the kitchen before you can make an, a, uh, an informed choice of, all right, I'm just going to go black and white. At least you're making an informed choice as opposed to I'm limited, so this is the only choice I can make. Does that make sense? Neat. Interesting. Well, what about the first album you bought with your own money when you made your identity like this in my music? Well, in regards to which? Like, the, you know, if you had the music your parents played, when you went out and said, I'm buying this with my money, any album. What, what is the question? What was the first album you bought? Oh. Well, with my own money, yeah. For the money with parents' money was Beatle Records, you know, British Invasion kind of term. Um, the first record that I bought with my money, there were three of them. They were all bought one felt swoop was Blood, Sweat, and Tears with Spinning Wheel and you know, God Bless the Child, the classic Blood, Sweat, and Tears. I think it's their first record. And the same time, same expedition was uh, Electric Ladyland. I think that's actually sitting over there right now. And uh, Creedence Clearwater, Born on the Bayou. You can see the symmetry of all of that music winding its way into, you know, currently what I do for a living. And uh, I had $150 stereo two jbl cabinets and a realistic uh, uh turntable and a marantz uh what you'll call it a marantz tube amplifier that is down in the basement right now i never got rid of that i listened to that for decades it's, it's it has what we call tube for the uninitiated provides a more forgiving sound it's not so harsh it supports the bass it's uh you know a lot of us myself included look better under not really harsh bright light hey no comment <laughs> and a tube amplifier perhaps is a little bit more mood lighting on the sound and uh uh 
analog, I will always be in a world full of digital destiny. On the book side of things, you identify very much with The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain. What is it about that book that resonates with you? I think it's Mark Twain that resonates more than any other factor of the Mark Twain, Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, uh, speaking, poor, uh, what did he actually contribute to the greater good experience? Um, Huck is Mark Twain. This is somebody who had a number of different jobs uh, the way up all the way to the end of his career. Sam Clements did many different things. He started off as a columnist and finished life as a, on speaking tour, traveling. And how did he go doing speaking tours to Italy in the 1800s or whatever? He did it. Um, he was an author. He was a reporter. He did a number of different worked in the uh, steamboats. I guess that's equivalent to work in the oil ferries, etc. That was a working template in many ways for young folks, baby boomers growing up in the 50s and to a fair degree in the 60s, particularly even when the hippies showed up. The idea that you didn't even have to have a job. Just tried a whole lot of different experiences. Okay, I'm going to India. I'm going to bathe in the uh, Ganges River. Then I'm going to go to Hawaii and join a commune. And then, and then, and then. And even really have to have a job. I'll get a job on a boat and work my way across uh, the Caribbean to the West Indies. Well, is that really a job? So even that entered into the idea of, do you really want just one job for a lifetime? Hmm. Or do you want a story that's a little bit more like, and it's, I use it because it's cliche, it's, it's hackneyed, it is overly familiar, but when you say Jack London, the guy who went to the Yukon to be a gold miner, but then, uh, now I'm going to enter into my own story. I went to the Yukon to work on the pipeline. And we finished the pipeline. So I got a job with the Russians who were flying supplies in and out. I didn't really speak Russian, but I wind up in Leningrad. And I fall in with some gangsters there who say, we have some wonderful interests in Rio de Janeiro. Would you represent us? You look family Mexican. They don't know I'm Jewish. I don't tell them. So I fly to Rio. That's where I met your mom. <laughs> she's singing in this bar i'm managing <laughs> she says to me your voice is pretty good why are you managing a bar come out from behind the counter and sing with me i get drunk one night and i do the rest is history now eat your dinner <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> <laughs> well, on, on the note of women, it's that's a story, and if you can somehow uh, balance that out with real life, then uh, some semblance of that with real life, then that's living large. Now it's going to have downsides. It's not going to. It's not going to be all positive. I'm going to follow. You're going to dead end. 
perhaps a bit more frequently than somebody who has the greater design in mind. I will go to law school. I will get married. I will have 2.2 kids. All right, that's a little more predictable. It's, you can expect the outcome a little more accurately than, so I find myself in Leningrad. I can't even say Leningrad, but I'm happy, so I stay. They're going to have some sad nights there. You know, like, oh, my God, I hate Leningrad. The fuck are they eating for breakfast? How can you even call that shit breakfast? <laughs> you will go through that. Are you an Audrey Hepburn kind of a guy or a Marilyn Monroe kind of a guy? Well, for the uninitiated, you're going to have to define what you mean by Marilyn versus Audrey, or I'll have to do it for us. Which would you prefer to do? What, what's the subtext here? What does Marilyn mean to you in contrast to Audrey Hepburn? That's interesting. Because, I mean, I guess Marilyn Monroe is the quintessential sex on a stick. And Audrey Hepburn is a little more demure. But, I mean, I guess it's a matter of preference. <laughs> I don't know. I okay, mean, well, no, I think, I, all right, let's, let, let's just test the deep end here with both big toes. Um, Marilyn Monroe was a sex object. You wanted to sleep with her or you wanted your wife to dress like her, or you would suggest to your girlfriend, why don't you get your hair cut like that? Or you would close your eyes and pretend it's Marilyn. <laughs> or you would fantasize in some sense, you know, you, you tell your kid, now that's a hell of a bag, that's sexy, or whatever. But it's just direct desire to make the physical with that person. I don't know if Audrey Hepburn is the best idea of a sex symbol, okay? But a sex symbol is somebody who introduces into the proceedings a, uh, a sexual overtone. It makes everybody feel sexy. Do you follow? Um, it's somebody who, no matter what's going on, adds that tension and creates that general, you know, feeling in everybody, but it may not be aimed at that individual. If there's, you're asking me about it, so there's a connection somewhere that we're fencing around. I'm not a sex object, especially the older I get. You can pick much more good-looking people to sleep with. Guaranteed, especially with my shirt on, believe me. However, what I'm really good at <laughs> is creating an overtone at the general campfire <laughs> or pep rally or local armory or arena, or you can put it on a record. And even in the car, you yourself will start to feel young and skinny and invincible and desirable. And as a guy, you will feel now I am all powerful. And the women will start to feel like a little more apple of the eye, etc. And, you know, consequently, 
uh, Van Halen material is virtually responsible for a baby boom in and of itself. You know, you play a song like Panama, a lot of people took their first ride in or gave their first Hummer to that song. That's pretty good, Mr. Words. <laughs> well done. Play that one back. <laughs> Maybe that one will go viral. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody's looking at me. At the end of the night, I go, hey, thanks. <laughs> Great night. But <laughs> I just helped with the lighting. I helped, you know, with the uh, set to tape. Good day. I helped pick the tunes. Uh, you know, I'm a little bit like the devil and damn Yankees leaning over the shoulder and going, how's it going so far, Joe? Need any help? You need any help? I'll be right over there. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, what do you look for? <laughs> and it's, people encourage themselves, and that's a great party. When you can stand off in the alcove and look in and everybody's carrying on like crazy. And you started it, you built it, but now it flies wonderfully without you in it. That's building something. Bob. What do you look for in a woman? Well, you make joke answers about it, but uh, sense of humor. Uh, a sense of uh, wonderment, a sense of not afraid of new. And I don't mean like, let's put on these ads and be this today. I mean, every day is something new, particularly the daily catastrophe. So does this fascinate you, the mechanics of this? Uh, do you operate? Yeah, look for this in a woman. Uh, when things go wrong and then they get worse and then they get worse, do you laugh or do you cry? Because hmm. I don't think there's any laughter in heaven. I think things have to go wrong and they get worse and they go wronger and then you just got to fucking laugh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Do you have that capacity? Is that you? Or do you freeze? Do you deer in the headlights? Do you have a different reaction? Because every day is a daily catastrophe. Every day is a new, you know, high hurdle. You have, do you perceive of life as that? Or is life a daffodil punctuated by horror every now and then? You know, what is, I think it's, uh, I think it's a comedy of errors. And I enjoy it. Do you enjoy people? Like women who enjoy folks. Uh, do you have the capacity to look at somebody with a great big tattoo that you would never, ever get, but truly enjoy that tattoo and looking at it and enjoy talking about it and experiencing it? Or do you have a stream? Do you have an extreme aversion to it because it's not you? Because that's productive. That's, that's successful and fun people watching. Most folks will look at other folks. They are not people watchers. Most are not. Most of us are not. And most of us will look at another human being and go, oh, I'd never get a haircut like that. And then stop right there. Oh, I'd never wear shoes like that. Oh, and they stop right there. In a woman, 
are you capable of getting past that and enjoying what that other person is doing, even though you want nothing to do with it? Because that's the bulk of the, of the earth. <laughs> I'm not going to wear a turban. And no, <laughs> but I enjoy you if you do. And going boo is as much fun as yay. What I look for in a woman is something other than uh, political finesse. You know, everything is, oh, it was great. It was wonderful. I prefer critique, examining the weak points or locating the soft spots, whether it's in a football game, the strategies invested in a football game that I just watched or in a painting that just came up in an art gallery opening. I enjoy locating the, uh, the weaknesses and critiquing. There's a manner of elevating my capacity to do that, as well as maintaining a nice high arc of expectancy in the art form itself. If you don't critique, then the art form itself will slowly decompensate, you follow. If every time everybody in a class paints a picture, every single time all the teacher does is go, that's wonderful, that's great, that's wonderful, little by little, the artwork will not improve. It will slowly decompensate. Less and less will be invested onto the page because no matter what you do, you get a compliment. You make it a little tougher, a little more incentive uh, biased, a little more reward driven, then people will try harder, at least to amuse or entertain or infuriate or outrage or whatever it is you're doing on that piece of paper, so to speak especially if there's competition. There is competition for that reward, whatever that reward may be. Simple compliment, a dollar, somewhere in between. Bragging rights, whatever. Then uh, it elevates. What I look for in a woman is somebody who thinks like this, as opposed to how was Hawaii? Oh, it was wonderful. Why? Oh, because it was so much fun. Why? Because everybody was just feeling great. Some people just can't get past that plateau of conversancy. I'm interested, even if you have something negative to say, that, that plausibly is more fun. Hmm. We go out to dinner and it tastes great. What's the best you can possibly say? Uh, the, the, the first and the second dish were out of this world. They were amazing. They transported me. I felt like I was eating uh, uh, the best ever. And I hope to go back. And it was just like, you know, how boring. If it's bad, you go, man, that shit was like a mouthful of number two pencils. Remember sixth grade? <laughs> But without the eraser, because the eraser had a slightly salty taste, and that stuff could have used some salt. <laughs> uh, waiter, can I have a bowl full of erasers, please? Yeah, oh, what a great critique. <laughs> and you can do that with movies. You can do it with theater. You do it with uh, authorship, literature literary concerns, you know, just anything in the fine arts, at least, you know. Tell us about your first girlfriend. 
Oh, my first girlfriend was Janine Scott. I was about 15 years old, maybe 14 years old here in Pasadena. And uh, I was working at a stable. I'd ask my dad for an allowance. Should I hereby allow you to get a job? So I was, my first job was shoveling shit at a stable. Bicycle distance from here. Um, pleasure animals, about 200 horses at a stable in the Kiwi. Uh, and I worked uh, all summer. I think I was 13. Uh, and then uh, when school started, I worked before and after school. Get up at dawn and go down and work until it was time to go to school or to hitchhike to school. And then uh, uh, after school, go back and work uh, till dark. Um, I was one of the exercise boys. I was one of the fellows who worked with uh, the tack and cleaning the leather gear. And this starts to become like a Tennessee Williams thing. She was one of the wealthy blonde daughters of a well-to-do real estate, something or other, uh, private school education, you know, the great unobtainable. Turns out it's obtainable. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we started hanging around with each other in, uh, at the stables. Surreptitiously behind the scenes because I was supposed to be. Well, I was, I guess I was doing my best to play the part of kid from the wrong side of tracks. But how far wrong side of the tracks can you be if your dad's a doctor? So, you know, <laughs> nevertheless, this was the 60s. So, wrong side of the tracks was pre indicated by the length of your haircut, the, uh, uh, the width of your belt. Why whale cords? Uh, and we basically live in our hunt gear, which is, you know, the knee-high boots, the britches. We worked at the horse shows. There were two other guys, Mike, and we, uh, you know, we groomed all the horses. Uh, we bring in the animals from Santa Anita Racetrack and uh, uh, train them into stock seat riding and roping for Western and then uh, hunters and jumpers for uh, competition and pleasure, which in the sixties and the seventies was a, it probably still is huge industry all over California, Nevada, uh, Arizona. You know, the weather is super supportive of that in the outdoors it's livestock. <clears throat> And uh, it was like working in a carnival, being a carny. We, we traveled all over these states, picking up horses, dropping them off, competing, and living in the jockey quarters up above the horse stalls down at the Del Mar racetrack. It was two-week-long uh, two uh, horse show and state fairs. There's thousands thousands of people down there and that's your first experience of really being free from the family being free from uh, any restraints you're aroused about you're finally in the book you're finally carrying a pack of uh, illicit marlboro cigarettes in your pocket and you got 15 dollars american in the other pocket and we're gonna go play ring toss and look for girls
How did you get the idea to start The Roth Show? The Roth Show is broadcasting, and I wanted to do that before I wanted to sing and dance. Broadcasting on the radio, uh, as I grew up with it in the 60s, in part of the 70s, it was a very distinguished uh, art form. Uh, in contrast to what is, uh, at least in appearance, very predictable today. It was personality-driven, voice-driven. Um, uh, individuals like Wolfman Jack had instantly identifiable signature voices that were as identifiable as Rod Stewart or Billy Holiday. Um, the styles were as codified and as familiar uh, and varying as uh, as the neighborhoods I described in Southern California. Uh, in example, the jazz disc jockey talked very low and slow like a heroine. It would take, oh, about four minutes to think about doing the traffic, but we'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> and you would practice that kind of timing as a 12-year-old in comparison to AM radio. It's just a flick of a switch away, and that's all. That that's closer to what a lot of rappers are doing. You know, how about a bumping a bumping with the bed bed for the boss beat the top of the pop smash go with the time to do for those detection taste. That's closer to Florida and Florida. In 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 cadence, actually I sound pretty good. How about a bumping a bumping with the bed for the boss beat the top of the pop smash go with the time to do for those detection taste. That's modern hip hop. Whatever, but you wouldn't speak that quickly. You know, that's, uh, that's hyper caffeinated, you know, amphetamized disc jockey, top 40 style. I can keep going. Country, there was always two guys, you know, <laughs> jockeying back and what hell I tell you what it, you know it's full of all that kind of slang etc which was very different than black you know black DJs spoke to so wanting to do that it's like playing a musical instrument is it's a signature and as familiar to the neighborhoods if you say jazz anybody could entertain you that kind of a, a disc jockey is a top 40 could still do it um and we imitated those individuals and characters as much or more frequently than individual artists because you heard those guys constantly. Constantly. They were in between every song. You want to, If you want to imitate a singer, you might have to wait hours until that one song comes on one time for 2 minutes and 28 seconds once that day. And it might not come back on for days. Depending on what kind of singer. If it's top 40, you'll hear it two, four times a day. If it's FM underground and it's the 60s, you might not ever hear it again. That was just somebody with his own personal record collection. He's doing deep tracks, B-sides, you know, whatever. You may never hear it again, but the disc jockey, 
you heard that over and over and over again, that we now live in a culture that super venerates the disc jockey is of no surprise to me at all. The selector. <laughs> what some of the Jamaicans call it. I'm the selector. You know, I get it. And a really good jock can take 20 records and fill that dance floor and sell them drinks like crazy. And a bad jock can take the same 20 records and ruin everything. Clear the floor. All the girls are in the ladies' room talking. Bartenders sitting there waiting, waiting. Why is that? Because it's talent. When you add in the personality, the ideas, the presentation, the timing, the time, who is that guy? Is this somebody who creates a fun atmosphere, a sexy atmosphere? Is this somebody who creates an atmosphere of hilarity? Is it uh, aggressive? Is this fighting spirit? You know, let's get drunk and go out and break something. <laughs> you follow? It's This is all part of the broadcaster, the one who's speaking. Um, today, largely do, well, it's a composite. I think it's in quote, in, in part for two reasons. Uh, that popular radio, terrestrial radio, is super predictable and super familiar. Why? Well, out of every hundred broadcasters, disc jockeys, personalities, etc., how many of them are just great? How many Howard Stearns per hundred do you get? None. You'll get one Howard per every 7,000 personalities, disc jockeys, maybe. And that one individual may not have perfected or worked it or even be aware they have the talent. You follow, it has to be nurtured, it has to grow, it has to be educated. A chess prodigy has to learn how to play the game. There is that art. You follow, same thing for a broadcast personality. Even on the far side of the concern, like a Rush Limbaugh, how many of those do you get per every thousand? Hmm. None. Per 10,000, maybe one. And again, has he worked it? Has he improved? Is he mold constructing that or probably not so you have to create something on the radio that will provide a continuity even though you don't have stellar talent so you build in a hell of a first we have a rock block then we have a sports block then we have the news then we have the weather then we have the traffic then we have the traffic girl for you to flirt <laughs> then, then, then and you lay that out and then they will brief the individuals, you know, over and over again. Now, here's what we want you to do at 20 minutes to the hour. I want you to tell them that it's 20 minutes to the hour. Okay. Now, when it's 10 minutes after the hour, I want you to say it's 10 minutes after the hour. At 20 minutes to the hour, tell them that you're going to tell them that it's 20 minutes to the hour right before you tell them. And then tell them you're going to announce it when it's 10 minutes after the hour, but only when that happens. You with me so far? Okay, let's keep going. And they will do that so that no matter who shows up, as long as you keep an ebullient kind of bubbly persona going, hey, <laughs> That's my radio laugh. <laughs> I can't 
Okay, we're going to be back here in 20 minutes. It's uh, 20 minutes to the hour. We got a big rock block. We got a traffic block coming up here. We're going to be doing the weather at 20 minutes to the hour. And at 10 minutes after the hour, I'm going to be telling you it's 10 minutes after the hour. So don't go away until it's 10 minutes after the hour because in 20 minutes, it'll be the hour. I was talking about this with Adam Carolla. He had the same experience. If you have anything to offer or an idea that steps outside that structure, it's sort of like being in the opera and going, hey, I have some new words I'd like to add. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> It's like being in West Side Story and going, you know what? I'd like to change this song a little. I go, whoa, whoa. <laughs> we laugh at it. It's that structure. And it has led to predictability. And predictability is that's that haunts us all in any art form. Because in, in any of the audience, myself included, is a monkey that wants to go, I get it, forget it. We want to be able to digest. Yeah, I understand what you're doing. Forget it, Nick. So, um, I tried to, uh, I, I was in radio for four and a half months with uh, Howard Stern. And uh, he had uh, left to do satellite. And I got that seat in New York City. And I got fired after four and a half months. Uh, somebody in Japan just asked me to read it fairly recently. He said, Dave, son, I understand you got fired from a big radio job. I said, would you ever get fired from McDonald's? It's a big seat. Um, I got fired for playing too much ethnic music in the background. Says, you shouldn't even have to be able to speak English to enjoy this. I made loops of everything that is, uh, you know, familiar upbeat grooves. <laughs> I took a little Bob Marley and just loop that before the vocals come in. That way, when we have a you know conversation like this, you hear that in the background. We're broadcasting on the internet. It's all over the world. A lot of people don't speak English. They shouldn't have to. Groove on the Bob Marley. You'll understand from the tone and the temperament what we're, where we're at, at least uh, quasi-geo-spiritually something, you know. You can't play uh, ethnic music. Uh, you're a rock and roller. Bob Marley is the sound of white rock and rollers on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Play Bob Marley to anybody who grew up on classic rock and they'll go, oh, spring break. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's me at the lake. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we play some cool in the game. You know, and they go, you can't play ethnic music. This is a white rock and roll audience who grew up with you. Well, that may well be the core of the audience. But cool in the gang is the sound of every white rocker graduating high school. It's that party. It's every prom party. It's every homecoming party. It's, I just got married. Would you like to dance? That's cool in the game. You understand? You can go to a Hasidic Jewish bar mitzvah in Brooklyn, and they will be playing ladies' night on the stereo. Me, they'll say, okay, he's Jewish. He's a brother. He gets in, but he doesn't sing a note. <laughs> he runs with the devil, this one. 
So even at the same party, you'll hear Cool and the gang, they won't let me sing. <laughs> My own wedding. <laughs> <laughs> My own bar <laughs> So we're reading the audience. We're not reading charts. And uh, uh, they said that my humor, though sterling, well, that's actually my choice of ash tip, was uh, uh, was late night humor, mm. as opposed to morning humor. And I, you know, I played the game of well, just imagine we stayed up or you know whatever. But they were looking for the familiar code to follow. Syndrome I had. Rock block, sports block, traffic block, etc. You know, with the you know, like this. And uh, I was bringing something different. I was bringing what the Roth show is. I was just beginning to touch on the subject matter at length of what the Roth show was, uh, and, and the subject matter is sprawling, but. It brings with it a subtext of, you know, we started off before we turned the cameras on. You asked me, how many interviews do you think I've done? Do I think I've done in my life? Easily several thousand. Easily. Every other one, if we become friendly, somebody asks, what must it like to be you? What must it be like in your mind? Why, in response to the impact of a career like you've had or an experience like you've had or, uh, uh, or anybody in, in showbiz positioning like mine, what does that do to your interests, to your fascinations, to your passions? And, uh, well, here's the answer. You want to know what's going on inside of me, what triggers me, what uh, compels me competitively, what compels me recreationally. Hey, that sounds like a good idea. Or, wow, that's a great story. I hope I can someday, blah, 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 blah. Then this is it. I also have a little bit to teach. There's a little National Geographic, a little travelog. There's some Mark Twain here. There's some cooking channel. <laughs> it's uh, it's not like really, um, we're not really wandering around city sites. Today, we go to Milan, colorful Italian city of Nara. You wander around inside my skull. <laughs> and uh, you're going to bump into a lot of characters because I'm a people person. So whether it's an old Japanese wrestler from the 50s, or whether it's a, a semantics professor discussing swearing in New York City, or whether it's, uh, you know, an, an engineer who works in radio and explaining to you finally why FM DJ speaks so slow, <laughs> the real reason. All of that is, uh, these are all answers to a lot of questions that, uh, it's just way too too rich and too extensive to answer in an interview format. You know, if you want to talk about Ricky Dozen, the Japanese wrestler, it's going to take an hour and a half. That'll eat up your whole interview bias, you know. So, but people ask, well, what things do you, what do you read? What do you go? Where do you go? How do you do it? Et cetera. Those are long answers if you're prepared to articulate. And I am. These are these answers. And 
it's uh, a bit like uh, a magazine, you know, but the art of storytelling, whether it's a campfire or sitting around a digital tape recorder, is a refined art form. And uh, I've sat around a few campfires. Stick with me here. How are you liking working in the visual medium? The internet for me, from my, excuse me, the internet from my perspective uh, is, of course, a fine arts perspective. Let me illuminate. The internet is my own personal Broadway stage. And it is for you if you so decide. It is our own personal movie theater, our own personal radio station, our own personal television channel. Not television show, but television channel, because it is encompassing of that, should should you so choose. Um, uh, And it provides access to uh, platforms uh, for investigation, research, and presentation and performance that otherwise were just exclusionary. If you weren't with a record company, nobody heard your music. If you weren't in a Broadway show, nobody saw you dance. Nobody saw you act. If you weren't uh, with uh, Simon & Schuster, or, you know, a legitimate publisher, you could type all you want. Nobody's going to read what you got. If you weren't assigned to a news desk and a columnist with a very real newspaper, your dreams of being a columnist, don't even bother learning to spell it. It's, you know, it's, you're not going anywhere. And uh, a great deal of that has been pushed aside now. Those avenues are very free and very open. And uh, the work stands on its own. Uh, You have to be prepared that your audience is going to go and enjoy going boo as much as yay. But that is the very nature of art, to compel uh, the audience or the witness, the participant, to think, to critique, to argue to uh, question. And uh, it's also uh, art, high art, can come in many varieties. It's to compel you to figure out where you are on the map. You know, you know look at, a, you figure out, you know, your values. That ain't art. That's just a picture of a soup can. No. I think that's a marvelous didactic explanation of growing up in a uh, overly industrialized background where uh, Campbell soup cans are, are the mountains and the rivers, etc. You know, I'm, see, I'm thinking as an artist, so I could put myself on the map of okay, this is where I am. On the other hand, I didn't like Andy's haircut, so now I understand where I am cosmetically, but I did dig the sunglasses. So now I'm kind of painting in my picture of who I am. You follow? And we all do that. And you can do that with the Mona Lisa, or you can do that with the Kardashians. Because you're going to watch that show, and you're going to go, oh my God, I'd never marry a dame like that. You're kind of 
figuring out on the social map where you stand. But I would dedicate a gal like that. Okay. Now, I wouldn't cut my hair like that. But I would eat dinner like they're eating it. You know, and little by little, you create like the Sims. <laughs> You're creating who you are. And that's what art is for. Uh, the internet allows us to really get involved in that right away, whereas those doors were very closed in most of those departments, unless you sign up with one for life. You don't just bounce from, it's very rare. You bounce from Broadway to cinema to uh, concert stage, then broadcasting. It's a, You have to sign up for one and and do one job and do the hell out of it. Um, I don't recommend, I think the word's megalomania. Oh, I can do everything. Become a jack a jack off of trades. <laughs> a master of disaster. You know, it's just do everything poorly. The mediocre are always at their best. You can say that for them. But uh, in terms of doing what I do, it fits. We do a variety of different media. What I already do as, I don't know, the voice of Van Halen as a singer in a rock band already fits in terms of we make little movies, we make videos. In terms of broadcasting and the spoken word, well, we do interviews. We have for decades, you know, but now we have a different uh, a way of presenting that, of, of reviewing that. And... uh the way even that we design what we do and construct what we do is super facilitated now. We get things done twice as fast. So you can be much more expansive imaginatively. In terms of your imaginatively, in terms of your imagination, <laughs> you can think much more colorfully, much more expansively, you know, uh, because you can actually get it done, you know, as opposed to. Oh, my God, you want to redesign the inner sleeve? Call the guy from Xerox, have him come up here, have him get the drawing, have him drive it back down to the shop, have him open up the shop. It's Sunday. Have him print up 14 different sizes of the new inner sleeve picture that you want. Do half of them in black and white. No, do 14 in color. Do 14 in black and white. Bring them all back up here, and then we'll cut them out with the scissors, and then we'll glue them to the acetate, and then we'll have a band. Oh. You're encouraged to just back away from uh, more complicated ideas or ideas that are a little more unfamiliar just because of the mileage. Literally, the mileage of you know back and forth. Well, where's the photographer? Well, he's in Casablanca. Boy, has the film? Well, yeah. So the film is safe. Great, great. But the safe film is in Casablanca. <laughs> so the film's not lost. It's safe. Great. When's he coming back from Casablanca? Well, actually, he lives there. <laughs> I see. Can, you, can he FedEx that to us? The FedEx doesn't exist yet. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> do, do you still get inspired to write lyrics oh yeah uh, 
all of the uh, notebooks and everything that are sitting down here are all pursuant to lyrics. And writing lyrics is a uh, utilizes muscles that are it's a perishable skill. Just like gun handling or probably progressive cooking. It's not like bicycle riding. It's like bicycle racing in, in that respect. You know, it's competitive, and you're if you're writing poems for a living, you want to give yourself all the advantage that you possibly can, because in this business, it's a three and a half year career. Nine times out of ten, it's about as long as you're going to last. It's a struggle to get past that, and the struggle will always be. You'll never get to the point where you're just comfortable and everything's fine. Just the description of, I write poems for a living. That's toughy. That's, a, that's a almost indigestible, implausible explanation. You're kidding. You're going to raise a family and pay the mortgage writing poems. Yeah. Then I'll sing them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, well, you want to give yourself as much advantage as you possibly can. So... It's a year-round thing, and it's something that you become not so much better at, but uh, you develop a confidence and a relaxed uh, facility for it. Um, we stop ourselves more than anything. It's, it is confidence that we probably vend more than anything else here. Nobody likes, nobody really wants to wear the kinds of clothes that I wear on stage. But you wish you had the confidence to wear those clothes. Hmm. Will there be another solo David Lee Roth record? A, a, a solo David Lee Roth record already exists. I recorded it with uh, John Fonick. Um, uh, that's been on the shelf for almost a year and a half, two years now. I don't have an ambition to perform solo. Uh, what I look towards doing uh, on stage, particularly in terms of rock and roll, is 24-hour job here with Bandy Hiller. And the band is in full function now, even though this is technically a year away from the mill. We're constantly busy. It's all day. When I'm in Japan, where I'm now spending most of my time, that starts at 3 in the morning. Just because of the time zones, get on the headset, cook up coffee and go. Um, God forbid something happens with Danny Allen, health-wise, you know, an, an act of contrition or an act of Ferrari. <laughs> Who knows what's going to happen? Rock bands are super fragile. And I don't think politics will rend this group asunder, but, you know, who knows how fish is and uh you know the band is getting to uh where we do the james bond schedule which is about every three and a half years where the music comes out you don't want to come back any sooner james bond movies have been around so often they come back any sooner in three and a half years and it's like well weren't you just here 
It's like that third Johnny Depp pirate movie. You know, what, didn't you just put out a pirate movie? Ooh, ooh. The third one's pretty good. Too soon, too soon. <laughs> um, so there is time. Nevertheless, the idea of write, record, rehearse, perform, it's very familiar, archly familiar. And if I'm going to do that, I can't really do it much better than Van Halen. If you ascribe to the F. Scott Fitzgerald axiom that there's no second chances in America, American culture, you know, you're known for what you did first. Well, that's my rock band, Van Halen. And uh, that being said, I've chosen to try something parallel. I've always wanted to broadcast. And doing the Roth show is something that will expand uh, mightily, given, you know, you know, Jesus don't tarry. We're going to be, you know, up and running and doing a variety of different new things there. That includes some music, but by and large, I think the music and the touring is accounted for by the VH band. So I don't think in terms of playing solo now. What is the best thing about being David Lee Roth? Best thing about being David Lee Roth is probably I've got it wired now to where I can go to a restaurant. They'll know who I am and I get a really good table and really good service. But because I'm a master of disguise and camouflage, nobody else in the room recognizes me. So I kind of come and go with impunity. I can maneuver around in the cities and the airports and the uh, public spaces of the world, invincible, invisible, invulnerable, like a true revolutionary. I walk amongst the people. When it's time to get attention, we take our hat off. You know, we put on something colorful and everybody recognizes David Lee Roth. Are you kidding? And I am one of those musicians that Virtually everybody, at least in two different generations, can imitate. Not uh, graciously, frequently. <laughs> <laughs> but you can draw a political cartoon of me, and most people will know who you mean. And uh, that, if you parlay it the right way, then uh, you get the best of both worlds. So does that make you an introvert or an extrovert? I don't know if I'm an extrovert. I think I had to learn to be an extrovert in order to be around people and uh, in order to be a part of something. Uh, I had to learn to be an extrovert. Um, I had to learn to become forceive in order to get things done. Uh, because in showbiz, they'll refer to you as the boys all the way up until your 70s. <laughs> hey, let's get the boys together and uh, have a talk. All the boys are 68 years old. <laughs> you follow? And once you've made that determination that somebody's a child or a perma child or a, a, a man boy or whatever you call that, and you're capable of lying and cheating and stealing. We, we lie to kids all the time. We take their lunch money all the time. Yeah, I know. I told you we were going to Disneyland. We're not going to Disneyland. We think nothing of that. 
And uh, I had to learn to become more extroverted in order to get folks to do what they promised on behalf of the band or on behalf of interactive doing business or whatnot that uh show biz is a jungle is no news that ain't headlines that it's uh cutthroat of course it is part of the allure it's part of the attraction wild wild west wild wild east um but i did have to learn to be a little more expansive and a little more forward even in doing uh, interviews so forth i learned very early that the world was not impressed and did not love me not the whole world not as much of the world as i felt should (laughs) has there been any dream of yours that has not come true longevity the dream of permanent youth pain-free flexible physically forever didn't come true I have to train around my injuries. They're uh, pretty frequent at this point. I've got everything old tap dancers and old wrestlers have, everything the old boxers and the old, I don't know what gymnasts have. You know, it's pretty much carpentry. And uh, It it remains to be seen how long can you do this for? You keep upping, keep re-enlisting. And uh, there appears to be no retirement age. There used to be. Retirement in the American military, I think, is 58 years old. Regardless of your rank, you must retire at 58. And we used to think that rock and roll was probably 10 years earlier than that. You probably go if you adopt a John Lee Hooker, Willie Nelson approach to things you can journey well up into your 80s tony bennett style i don't know if you could run with the devil uh when you're 80 years old you'll need some backup singers to help with that but that being said um i'm curious as to what the future will bring uh physically graphically in this kind of music, we are our bodies, like a boxer is. You know, the first thing you say when you say a boxer's name, especially after a long passage of time, was, what was his weight? So-and-so, the welterweight. Oh, you remember so-and-so, the heavyweight. You, you are your body. And as a singer, as a dancer, as, for example, Alex as a drummer, you very much are a product of uh, what you are physically first. It will affect your mood, your disposition, your capacity to perform. This is a classic flamenco guitar. This is kind of a combination of guitar and uh, speed skating. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, When you're the most content, where are you? And what are you doing? Most content for me is buried in a, in a, in a novel, a paperback somewhere. Generally on an airplane, uh, there's no phones. Screens are limited. We live in a world of screens. 
there's a there's a camera screen and the wristwatch. There's a wristwatch in the computer. <laughs> there's a computer in my cell phone. Wait a minute, my cell phone actually has a computer. <laughs> and the farthest away, the number one place you can turn your back on all of that uh, is uh, at about thirty six thousand feet. Um. I'm fortunate in that I have some very low, knock it off, Russ. It's my dog. Um, I'm fortunate that I have some very long plane flights now because I have a stack of paperbacks that I'm working my way through. I can't get reading done here. I can get listening done. I can get research done in terms of viewing, uh, you know, audio, visual, whatever. But in terms of getting lost in a book, that's my number one resource for recreation. And uh, I find that near and nigh unto impossible here just because of the phones on the screen. And uh, I can do that for hours and hours and hours. Once I start reading, I get lost. Always have been. That, that has been my drug of choice since I was a little boy. So for anyone who watches this, or listens to it on the radio, however they experience this interview. What do you want to say to those people who joined us for this conversation? Tune into the Roth Show. It will compel you. It will cause you to think. It will infuriate you. It will uh, start clamor, and it will make you laugh. You will have fun. You will celebrate as though you were myself. If you ever had a question of what's it like to be where I am, this is the surest answer. This is the most direct answer. And you get to be me for a fair amount of time. So on that note, who is David Lee Roth? David Lee Roth David Lee Roth is the American story. I don't know if it's the American dream. David Lee Roth is a composite of the old American story and something very modern, very new. David Lee Roth is everything that's great, right, and wonderful with America. David Lee Roth is everything that's wrong, crazy, and unforgivable about America. <laughs> How's that for a base hit? Hey, there you go. Well, sir, thank you so much. Likewise, thank you. Like great stories, great stuff. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano. 
The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.